Our next guest is, what else can I say, an NPR favorite. That is Rhiannon Giddens. She is a founding member of the Grammy award-winning group, The Carolina Chocolate Drops, which won both critical acclaim and loyal fans for their revival of the African-American string band tradition. 2017 was a big year for Giddens. She released Freedom Highway, a solo album of raw, haunting songs inspired by the slave narratives. Also last year, she received the prestigious MacArthur Fellowship, a so-called genius grant, awarded to individuals who've shown exceptional creativity in their work. And Rhiannon Giddens is now on tour, and she was nice enough to come into our studios in Washington, D.C. to talk about her work and uh, perform a song or two from Freedom Highway. And thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on the MacArthur grant. You know, I have to ask, like, where you were and what you were doing when you found out. I was on tour, as usual, uh, I think. Or maybe I wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know anymore what my life is. But I was out somewhere. I wasn't home. You know, I was I was working. And uh, I got a phone call. I was at a cafe. And, you know, this woman I didn't know said, are you somewhere where you could have a private conversation? I was like, I guess. I'm at a cafe. And then, you know, the bomb dropped. And I was just, like, completely floored. Do you remember what went through your mind when you heard? You know, it was like, I was super shocked. Of course, every year the list comes out and every year you think, God, what I wouldn't do for one of those, <laughs> you know, but you're like, you never think you would actually get one. And to get that phone call, I was kind of in shock when I got it. But then when she went on to to read what they'd written about me, you know, like how they'd sort of synthesized my work into a paragraph of like what I've been up to it just really made me feel amazing because I kind of went gosh people are actually listening (laughs) and like appreciating what I'm doing because you know you just kind of like do and you're doing you do and you do and you do what you feel like you're supposed to be doing you know and you don't know what's landing you don't know what's affecting people you don't know you just kind of do it until something like this goes yeah what you're doing to keep going you know it's the most it's incredible it's not the money so much as the validation from people my peers, people who are in these industries who are like, we want to encourage you to keep going. Like, that was the most thing for me. It was well, here's amazing. what they said. The the foundation said it honored you for reclaiming African-American contributions to folk and country music and bringing to light new connections between music from the past and the present. Not too bad. Not too shabby. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of the money, though, um, <laughs> you've said one of the first projects that I've I've heard you say that you're going to work on is a musical about the uh, is, is musical the right word like an opera or no, it's definitely not an opera. You know, it's I mean, musical treatment. Yes, you say? You know, with, with music for sure. Yeah. Oh, theatrical treatment of the Wilmington insurrection of 1898. And I know that you said that this was actually a coup yes. more than a riot. So could you just briefly tell us about that event in history and why you're drawn to it? So this is the only coup that's ever happened on American soil, as far as I know, which is an enormous event. I was in North Carolina. I'm a North Carolina native, grew up in North Carolina, never learned about it. So not only was it a coup, it was also a massacre. It was not an insurrection. It was not a race riot. It was a massacre. But that is the language that has been used about it to change the narrative. What happened was a fusionist party, like I'm giving you the total, the quickest version. Sure, a fusionist party of white and black political base, working class, just blacks and whites got together, made this fusionist party, and were gaining ground. We're getting successful in the political arena in North Carolina. And the white supremacists were like having none of it. You know, they were like, no, we're going to take this back. This is not happening. And so for the year leading up to the, this election in 1898, 
they employed the Ku Klux Klan to, you know, do their intimidation and terror and all this kind of stuff all the year leading up to it. And then people were so scared. A lot of them didn't even go vote. So they got a lot of those seats back. But there were still fusionist politicians who were in office a few days after that get a bunch of rifles, just literally start shooting people, shooting black people in the streets, you know, and a bunch of people go hide in the swamps. A lot of them die of exposure because it's November and it's, you know, days they're hiding out there. So there's just like this huge thing. And they this was run- literally a state-sponsored massacre. Absolutely. They ran, they not only mm-hmm. killed a bunch of black people, but they ran the white politicians out of town and they ran any prominent black business person, any prominent black, you know, cultural leader, ran them out of town. They said, you can leave or die. So they ran them out on a rail, basically replaced the, those offices with their own politicians, and the federal government didn't do a thing. How did you know of this? How did you hear about this? I heard about this um, from, there's a uh, an amazing writer in Wilmington who lives in Wilmington, North Carolina. He's been doing a lot of work with this called John Jeremiah Sullivan. And we were talking about a different project, and he brought this up, and I was like, the what of what 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 are you talking about in 1898 I had no idea and I started digging and I was like oh my god so and so we're working together on it and the idea is that there was this promise of uh, a biracial coalition. Of this biracial coalition, also culturally, you know, as well. And you think about that's what Reconstruction was trying to do. And the thing is, we think Reconstruction failed. It didn't fail. It was deconstructed. It was destroyed, right? And this is what happened. There was this pocket where this was actually working in Wilmington. It was a majority black city. You know, the only, I think, full-time black paper was there. And this was actually one of the first places they went and burned it down to the ground. And that, that's like a whole other part of the story. And so for me, it's like, yeah, there were a lot of people were killed, which is horrible. There was this whole political thing that happened, which was horrible. But also there was this destruction of hope. There was this destruction of what we could be. And it was a setback. It was an enormous setback for the black populist movement, for black political power, for not just black political power, but for the idea of working together. And and the idea of making this a theatrical presentation with music mm-hmm. Um, is that because that's your language or, or do you hear the music already? Do you hear the, the music that would inform this story? Well, the, you know, the thing is, like, there's a lot of action, of obviously, that goes on with this. And that's what some people would want to focus on. We want to focus on the violence and this and what happened. But I'm actually more interested in focusing on the culture that existed before, right? Because this is what we don't hear about. We don't hear about where this actually was working. And that's all to their good. That the people who destroyed it, that's what they wanted. You know, they, they erased it from history. They changed the terminology. Words matter. And the people who took the power, their names grace our schools and our in our streets and the people who are run out, we don't hear about. So the idea is to create this moment of where this culture was. And there's a lot of beautiful music from this time period that nobody talks about. They kind of go in black culture, oh, spirituals and work songs, and they skip ahead to the Harlem Renaissance. And I'm like, you know, with a little blues in between. And I'm like, wait a minute, there was actually this enormous, like all these years of this incredible mixing of styles and cultures that were going on that then feed into all the things we think of in the teens and the 20s, but we don't hear about it. And so it's an opportunity to put the, all that together. This is fascinating. You've given us so much to think about. Um, have you started writing it at all? Yeah, I have. I've started. Um, I'm thinking the last person that many people would know who created a theatrical musical work 
after winning a MacArthur grant was Lynn Manuel Miranda, <laughs> who created Hamilton. No pressure, though. No pressure. No pressure at all. No, do, no. do you have any of it in your head? Can you just even a couple bars? No, I can't. But I, you know, I have worked on some of the music. My songwriting partner Dirk Powell, who I did a lot of Freedom Highway with, we've been working on songs, and it's very, it's very exciting. I was just there in Wilmington. It's very much an active. There's no commissioning body for this, you know. So we're just kind of like whenever we have time, and and this is part of what the grant is for, is so that I can create space for that, you know, and to try to find, you know, residencies and do and do the and do this and not have to be sort of beholden to, you know, the cycle of of being on the record cycle and, and all of well, that. Well, keep us in mind when you're <laughs> ready to start presenting it to the world. You know, we'd certainly love to hear from you. You've brought your banjo with you, which you can if you listen to our conversation, you can hear a little bit in the yeah. background. It's on your lap. And you were nice enough to do a song for us. Before we ask you to do that, can you tell us about the banjo's role in the music that you are creating and that you have been reviving all these years? Absolutely. And and particularly this banjo that I have with me. I mean, obviously, I got started in old time music and in in roots music. And and the history of the banjo was a great spur for where I, I ended up sort of really getting into historical the historical milieu for the music that we were doing, you know? And so finding out the banjo is African-American instrument, all of that would just kind of blew my mind because I had no idea. And then I found this banjo, which is a replica of a banjo from 1858. So this style, people always are like, whoa, they act like it's a new banjo, but actually this is what banjo sounded like because before whites took up the banjo in the, the 40s and the 50s, 18, that is, 1840s and 50s, you know, they were gourd instruments, they were homemade instruments, and they sounded like this. They were deep, and they were dark, and and, and that's what the banjo sound was. And then eventually it changes, and it becomes the sort of bright sound that we know today. But for the first few hundred years of its existence, it was much more of a sort of earthy instrument, you know? And so the sound really attracted me. And so when I started working on these narratives, these songs that were inspired by slave narratives, because I just couldn't handle all the emotions reading these stories you know and then I started thinking where are these stories existing where are they existing you know and where are they in the songs and you realize people couldn't write about this stuff back then you know they had to put it all in code and you know is in the religious music and all that so I was like what if we had a narrative ballad tradition you know in our history in our culture like what would it be like and so this banjo wanted to go hand in hand with that it was like for me, when I picked it up, I went, this is my instrument. And I, have, I haven't, like, I was literally like, I hope you're selling this because I'm walking out <laughs> of this, you know, right. room with it. You and know, we didn't want to read about you, so, in that way, so. Well, thank you. What are you going to, um, what are you going to play? I'm going to play um, a song called, oh, which one am I going to play? <laughs> I, I, I hadn't decided until this moment. Um because there's two of these songs that kind of came out of the banjo. They just like I picked up the banjo and the song fell out. If you know what I mean, I, like that literally happened. Um, I could do um, actually, I'll do the first one that I wrote. Um, this was years ago. Uh, it's called Julian, and it was after I read this book called The Slaves' War by Andrew Ward. And what he did is he took all of these pieces of slave narratives and he put them in the context of the Civil War. So as you read the beginning, the middle, and the end of the war, you, you, you know what people's experiences were. A lot of people, not just one. You know, you like you read one from beginning to the end, you get one person, but this kind of gives you the idea of a community. You know, it was, it's a really beautiful book. And there was a story in there that inspired the song of two women who were seeing the Union Army coming and one of them was the mistress and the other one was, you know, 
the the person that the mistress thinks she owns, you know, uh, in her mind. And there's this conversation that goes on and it just like, it really hit me hard. Mm. It was like, this woman deserves her story to be told. You know, this was the first time that I sort of thought, oh my gosh, like this, you know, and, and the song wrote itself and the name came from nowhere. You know, it was like literally, it was Julie. I don't even know the women's names, but like, um, so this is Julie. Julie from Freedom Highway. Mistress, oh mistress, I wish you well 
But in leaving here, I'm leaving If you're just joining us, we're speaking with musician Rhiannon Giddens from her latest album, Freedom Highway. We're talking about that. That was a song from her latest album. We're also talking about her MacArthur Genius Award. She's also the winner of the 2016 Steve Martin Prize for Excellence in Banjo and Bluegrass. Whew, how do you even... You're a mother yourself, right? Yes. You have, how do you... Oh, how do you... <laughs> get through that singing that song on tour like every day how do you get through it i mean you know i am drawn to those stories i mean the the song we almost named the record after at the purchaser's option is also about a mother you know and and i am drawn to those stories because you know we we pay the price in so many different ways of the system you know women and it's um i don't think it's a story that gets told enough and I don't think what happened to the African-American family, the, you know, the way that it was torn apart time and time and time again, you know, these, these details and these subtleties like of, of these kind of stories, I think that's why I feel like it's what I'm here to, to say. You know, it's like I didn't have any control over this. This is what I was given to do, you know. And having children myself definitely gives me a, a strong connection to that. And I get through it because I didn't have to live it. I'm like... The least, the very least I can do is tell these stories because all these ancestors and all these people who came before me lived this so that I can sit here with you and talk about it. You know, so it's like I cannot be self-indulgent. Has the way people respond to your music changed in recent years? It's just interesting that your work has been dedicated to reviving giving voice to voices that had been forgotten, suppressed, ignored, buried, yes. okay? Now we are having violent conflicts over whose story gets told and how. Mm-hmm. You know, last year in Charlottesville, these, you know, these a tragic death after these white supremacists, supremacists protesting the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue mm-hmm. in New York just this past week, the a statue of a man who experimented on enslaved women yep. without anesthesia, yep. who was revered as the father of uh, obstetrics and gynecology. Yep. And, and people had been asking for this thing to be removed, remembering that what he did, he treated people in a way we don't even allow people to treat animals That's uh, right. now. And um, so I'm just wondering where your work fits into this conversation. What what do you think? It's like what I tell people is like when you look at something like, say, the massacre of 1898, you understand what's going on in North Carolina today. You understand the politics that are going on now. And so that's why I think this stuff is so important. It's like this is not relics. This is not, you know, I'm not doing this for fun. I mean, I mean, of course, I enjoy music, whatever. But like in terms of this message, it's like the white supremacist stuff they have in Charlottesville all makes sense when you know the history and when you know even the cultural history that the music reveals. You know, when you learn coon songs and you learn minstrelsy and you realize how deep this is in our culture, when you get into the history and realize where we are everywhere. The more I dug in finding out the true role of African-Americans in the creation of old-time music and, and square, like square dancing, for example, which is considered the ultimate American 
thing, right? Well, this is a narrative. It was a white American thing, right? Well, that was a narrative that was created in the 20s that was wholesale fabricated because all of the players for these dances back in the day were black. And even there's a lot of evidence that black people invented dance calling, which is what sets square dances apart from the quadrilles and things in Europe. Like they didn't have that. And that is, you know what I mean? So it's like when you when you look at that, it's not just, oh, wasn't it interesting? It's like, no, actually, it didn't just disappear. It was actually dismantled this idea that we were involved in all of these different things. And so when you go back and you look at that, it's actually very freeing. It's like, look, yeah, I mean, there was there was a great migration. There was, you know, changing musical taste. All of this stuff, you know, contributed to the decrease of African-Americans playing the banjo. That, but the biggest piece is this destruction of the the real story and the creation of the false story and then a separation into boxes of American music. And when you do that to our culture, that, that allows politically things to slot in, you know, because then you, you believe that, oh, we're so different when we're actually a lot more similar than we are different. And that is where it shows up in music over and over and over again. And that's why they have to stop it. You know what I mean? Do you feel that the music is changing things? Does it does? Do you feel that the work changes anything? What my work? Yeah, I have no idea. You know, I mean, and that's the hardest thing about being an artist is like, you literally just have to do what you were given to do. And and you just never you don't know until somebody walks up and says, I'm now playing the banjo until somebody walks up and says, I read that book and I have a different idea of what's going on, you know? And I feel like if I can, if five people <laughs> walk up to me and say that, I feel like I've made a difference. You know what I mean? I don't know what the impact is overall. I know the chocolate drops has contributed to the conversation. I know, you know, what I'm doing is contributing to the conversation. And I don't really th- think about what the impact is. I can't, you know, all I can do is get feedback from my audiences and people say, we love the history, keep it coming. You know, and so that's that's really powerful feedback for me because nobody's coming to my show to hear me talk. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're coming for the music, but the fact that they still appreciate that I contextualize these pieces, and I do try to do it in a pithy way, you know, because I know it's a music show, that means a lot, you know, and so I take that feedback and I, I, I sort of sink it into my brain and I go, okay, let's just keep going. Well, keep going. <laughs> that was musician, historian, recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, the Genius Award, Rhiannon Giddens. She's touring in support of her latest album, Freedom Highway, and she was nice enough to stop by our studios. Will you play us out on something? Play play something so we can sadly say goodbye until the next time we see you? <laughs> okay. what, what are you going to play? Um... I'll I'll play the other the other song that was inspired by being a mother called at the purchaser's option. Um, that was inspired by I'll say this really quickly. Inspired by an ad that I saw in the late 1700s that was for a young woman who was for sale. It's just very common, you know. It's like used car ads. I mean, seriously, you had you needed some cash, you just put an ad in the paper. It was horrible, you know. These are human beings, but it was so common. And it said at the end of it, it said she has with her a nine month old baby who is at the purchaser's option. And those words said everything to me. And I, I, I tried to put myself in her position, you know, her frame of mind. So um, it's at the purchaser's option. Rhiannon Giddens, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. I've got a babe, but shall I keep him? Twill come the day when I'll be weeping. How can I love him any less? This little babe upon my breast 
You can take my body, you can take my bones, you can take my blood, but not my soul. You can take my body, you can take my bones, take my blood, but not my soul. Shall I keep it? 